Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Mornings with Carmen here on this 26th of May. This is, of course, the Mornings Without Carmen edition. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today and tomorrow. So glad to be starting my day with all of you as part of the Faith Radio family, fixing our eyes on Jesus together, and delighted to be in studio, back in studio with Paul Perot. Paul, been away for a couple of weeks, been overseas, helping my daughter get home from her overseas study. I've missed you. This is hard for me to say, but but I've missed you. I mean, clearly I've missed our Faith Radio family. I just, I love all the texts and thoughts and calls and and what people bring to the table as, as we're united in this body together. But the work you and Carmen do morning in and morning out to bring the mind of Jesus into the really difficult topics of the day is, is really a light that doesn't exist in many places in this world. So grateful to be part of our friendship back in studio with you. Yeah, it's good to have you back. I mean, we missed you the last two weeks on Thursdays and, uh, you know, it's fun because you are able to think in areas, we, we do a lot of seemingly silly stuff, some of the silly headlines yes, with you of and, and, and oftentimes, but actually it's, it's fun because underneath it is some good, interesting worldview, world vision kind of conversations that a lot of people just kind of brush to the side and it's great to have you bring it to the fore. Yeah, well, and it, boy, there are a lot of conversations to be had, right? I just, it, I was away from the headlines a little bit over these last two weeks. You follow them on the margins a bit when you're when you're doing something else or focus on something else in life. But boy, the headlines these last even couple of weeks seem really rough in particular. I know we are close uh, to the Ukraine war, closer <laughs> yeah. over there. And of course, we've had the, the horrible shootings that have happened over these past uh, couple of weeks. We have Disney in an ongoing fight with Ron DeSantis in Florida about how to, how to communicate and portray LGBT. BTQ issues. You've got, of course, the abortion conversation happening in our country. There is so much that's happening. Now, I got to ask you. Okay, you're you're across the sea. You're you're in Scotland. What was the take? when they were talking about American news. Yeah, it is. A, I, even though they're English speaking, I forget how different the culture really is over there. And and so they pay attention. They they do legitimately pay attention to what's happening over here on this side of the pond uh, as a way of trying to understand maybe some of the future trends that are going on. Sometimes America's a little bit behind the curve and sometimes it's ahead of the curve. But I, But I think in specific related to the ongoing Ukraine war and, and, and the Russian invasion, you're just a little closer to it over there. So there's a lot more people that have been impacted. And so mm-hmm. I would go out to eat maybe. And, and for example, I met two people from Poland that mm. uh, Poland has clearly taken in millions of refugees as yes, a neighboring country, and they are under threat from Russia too. And so when you're actually not just reading the headlines, but talking to people who have been impacted by the fact that Ukrainians have been so displaced, men, women, and children that have had to cross the border into a very uncertain life. You see the starkness of the darkness up close in some of those ways that sometimes a little bit more removed from it on this side of it. I, I just, I appreciate the pain that people are in, but boy, oh boy, when you're, when you're with a fellow imager in a restaurant somewhere, it, it calls forth a compassion and that you can see that the pain and the sorrow they're experiencing. You know, it, you probably get pulled out of your uh, talking points. Yes. And you actually start 
understanding things a bit more. Yeah, that's uh, that's such a good way to say it, Paul. The, the talking points matter, but those talking points only matter in light of how they impact us as fellow sisters and brothers on mm-hmm. this journey. So glad to be with you, and again, glad to be with all of you as the Faith Radio family. Ben Johnson, who's our regular uh, up first leadoff batter here on Thursday mornings on Mornings Without Carmen, is going to join us, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of these difficult headlines, including up first the ongoing baby formula shortage. So stay with us. Glad to be with you. Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LaBerge. This is my right. Glad to be welcoming Ben Johnson into the show here on Mornings Without Carmen on this 26th of May. And Ben, it's been great to be friends over all of these years. I know you've done so much work, uh, different kinds of writing and podcasting and following the news uh, for a long season of time. And boy, there always seem to be new headlines that we haven't necessarily had to deal with before. And one of those has to do with this ongoing crisis related to the shortage of baby formula. It's it's unique to the United States for sure. It's a crisis that's been in the making for quite some time, um, but it is nonetheless terribly troubling. I can't imagine being a parent of a newborn and you go to the shelves and, and Target or Walmart or wherever you do your shopping and find that you don't have the formula to feed your baby. So take us into this conversation a bit. Well, you're right. I mean, this is something that so many Americans, uh, mothers and and working people uh, throughout America depend so much on infant formula, baby formula to feed our children. Uh, I did when I was uh, younger, and I know a lot of people have and uh, we cert- we suddenly see that 40% of retailer shelves are empty when it comes to baby formula. I mean, that's a 900% increase over this time last year. So it's obviously noticeable. Uh, people are traveling across state lines or they are buying uh, uh, infant formula for uh, uh, infinitely more than what we would usually expect over uh, over the Internet. And uh, all of this just in in an attempt to feed their own children, something that we never thought we would have to contend with uh, in the United States. Of course, the roots of it go back to February when Abbott, which makes Similac, shut down its plant in Sturgis, Michigan, uh, because there was a bacterial infection that hospitalized four babies, killing two of them. But uh, since that time, there have been no indications of any additional problems. And yet that Sturgis plant, which provides half of the Similac in the United States, remains shut down. Uh, so there are a couple of issues. That's the proximate cause. But then there are always roots that go a lot deeper than that. And uh, we want to talk about that just a little bit here. Uh, a lot of them, of course, have to do with government policy. Obviously not intentional, but the unintended consequences that we always hear about in economics are rearing their ugly head here. Uh, one of them is the uh, Women, Infants, and Children program, or WIC, uh, that uh, more than half of all baby formula purchases go through that government program, 92% of certain sizes uh, of baby formula are purchased with WIC, and WIC only allows participants to choose from a certain number of brands, one of which, one of the three, is Similac. Now, Similac and uh, one other company uh, essentially come up with almost the entire U.S. market, 80% of the U.S. market. So uh, that's an issue because so much of it is controlled. Uh, the dollars are controlled through WIC, and WIC only authorizes purchase of certain brands, including this one, which is now unavailable for all intents and purposes. Uh, Actually, a group of progressive legislators 
I believe uh, Elizabeth Warren was one of them, wrote a letter about this asking why uh, WIC is restricting this so artificially to these three companies. So there's there's a little bit of uh, that uh, at work here. Of course, uh, also the uh, companies have produced less because they had a great glut of sales during COVID-19, and then uh, people produced, uh, they produced a great deal in order to keep up with that demand. Obviously, during the lockdowns, uh, the, eventually those sales came back down to normal rates, and they had a glut of this product on their hands, so they reduced the amount that they were producing. Well, now no one can get any, and uh, they've, they've had to ramp up production once again. And it's hard to get infant baby formula from overseas to import it because uh, we slap tariffs of up to 17.5% on imports. So you have these three government policies that are essentially restricting the market in very uh, significant ways, and we're paying the price for it right now. Yeah, and uh, so many people are paying exactly that price that you describe, especially people who maybe are on the bottom part of what we could call the opportunity gap, meaning that there are, if you have enough resources and relational connections, you can tend to navigate these kinds of crises, meaning that as Similac was being bought up by people who wanted to resell it through online channels, even something like eBay, they might have bought up an entire shelf worth for 30 or 40 dollars a canister and then turned around and sold it on eBay for 150 or 200 dollars and and you see this kind of extortion happening but if you're a parent who has financial resources uh, you're willing to pay that for this period of time because it's going to feed your child or um, like you said as well, if you have relationships or, or friendships across state lines where maybe your state doesn't have the Similac or the formula that you need, you can call on relatives or friends. But Ben, if you don't have any of those things, if you don't have financial resources and, and you don't have a network of people with which to work, you really are in crisis mode. And, and this is a place, again, where independent of any of the politics of the situation, the church can help fill in some of those opportunity gaps for people that just simply don't have the resources to feed their children. Well, you're right. I mean, we, uh, those of us who are members of church have a body that stretches throughout the world from end to end of, of the entire uh, country. And so it's possible for us to help those who are in need uh, for churches to purchase this collectively and then distribute it to those uh, you know, throughout, uh, maybe, maybe members of the denomination who are elsewhere or people who are simply in need elsewhere uh, where they have those abundance uh, in certain areas, that they are able to uh, to purchase that for others. Uh, and also, of course, since we are a global body, it's also possible for churches in other nations to purchase it and ship it uh, to the United States without selling it, thereby not incurring the tariff. So uh, this is one of those areas where the Church of Christ has so much to do for those who are part of this body uh, that it's possible for us to supply the needs of others and in the process uh, so fulfill the law of Christ. Yeah, one more point on this quickly too, Ben. It sounds like some of the factories, specifically in Michigan, are going to be up and running shortly, if not already. And so we're maybe uh, around a couple of weeks, three, four weeks away from seeing some of the shelves being restocked. On a, At least even if it's slow, we're going to see the, the product coming back to the shelves. Glory to God. I think you're right. Uh, there, there has been a move now that this has come to national attention that uh, they are finally going to uh, move forward with this red tape that has kept uh, Sturgis closed for some time. Uh, again, that supplies about half of, uh, of Similac's national supply, and uh, they supply approximately 40% nationally. So we're talking about one in every five cans of a formula essentially coming out of that plant. So once that's back online, again, as you say, even if it's a little bit slow in coming up, we are at least uh, relatively uh, sure that we are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and uh, it's about time. 
this this gives us some idea of some of the uh, unnecessary bureaucratic regulations, some of the government policies that we need to trim back to make sure this doesn't happen a second time. And that's the voice of Ben Johnson. If you have a question for Ben or for me this morning as part of our different conversations, you can certainly text it in at 877 933 Again, that's 877 933 We've seen uh, several texts coming in. And again, if you have a question for Ben or for me or part of the conversation, uh, please feel free to chime in. Ben, when we come back after a couple minutes away, we're going to change the conversation over to some of the state-level battles over the, the pending abortion verdict, as well as the curious case of a Princeton professor who was fired. I can't wait to get your take on that next here on Mornings with Carmen. Like a stone in the water, watch the mud rise up. Dress me like a lamb for the slaughter, pour me in your cup. It's about 19 minutes past the top of the hour. Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge, and we are chatting with Ben Johnson, as we almost always do on these Thursday mornings as we get the show started. Ben, uh, there's some pretty interesting uh, conversation going on in our country around the state-level battles over abortion. Again, to remind that part of the Faith Radio family that we're awaiting the verdict from the Supreme Court that has been leaked that perhaps abortion is going to be overturned at the federal level, thus sending abortion rules, regulations, and laws to the state level. And that's we're going to see a lot of fights there. So take us into this conversation. Yes, the uh, Dobbs ruling, which has been leaked, uh, the draft written by Samuel Lolito and uh, allegedly endorsed by at least four other justices, uh, says that uh, essentially Roe v. Wade said that states can only regulate abortion when it comes to uh, the viability of the child. If the child is capable of living outside the womb on his own or her own, then uh, the state has the right to step in. And essentially, a lot of us have said for a very long time, uh, at a minimum, we have other interests in regulating uh, beyond the viability. So uh, the Dobbs decision looks as though it's going to validate this uh, Mississippi law, which is uh, regulating abortion to the first 15 weeks of pregnancy, which is still uh, quite a bit of time, needless to say. But it's not enough for those who are diehard into uh, the abortion industry, which is, of course, a multi-million dollar, multi-hundreds of millions of dollars per year, much of it funded by uh, the uh, U.S. taxpayer to the tune of half a billion dollars a year. Uh, one of the places that's going to be a flashpoint here is the state of Michigan. Uh, of course, wonderful state and a lot of wonderful pro-life people there. Uh, there is a movement to try and enshrine a constitutional amendment which would say that abortion is a right under the state constitution. Uh, it's see, and by the way, uh, part of the draft uh, of this uh, mentions that it will be up to the woman whether she engages in postpartum care which raises questions about whether someone would be um, uh, prosecuted, say, for abandoning or neglecting a child who's already been born, in my mind. But uh, beyond that, at least they are trying to move in a democratic fashion that way. This is not the way that most of this abortion conversation is going to take place. You see that elsewhere through a, a court of claims judge named Elizabeth Greischer. Uh, she struck down the 1931 law that uh, Michigan had enacted, uh, outlawing abortion in most cases, uh, because if Roe v. Wade is overturned, that law would automatically go back into effect. It's never been rescinded. It's simply been suspended by Roe in 73. So uh, she struck down the law, uh, essentially invented a right to uh, abortion in the state constitution. Now, if there's already one there, then you don't need to enact one. Uh, so it, it tells me that they already know that it doesn't exist. Uh, but by the way, ABC News covered this in the next to the last paragraph. It notes, and I quote, Gleischer, who also serves as chief judge on the Michigan Court of Appeals, informed the parties in this court case 
in April that she makes annual contributions to Planned Parenthood and as a lawyer represented the organization in a 1997 abortion case. She said she didn't feel it should disqualify her. Uh, that is the definition of someone who should, should have sought recusal uh, on these grounds, someone who worked for one of the plaintiffs in the case at one point. Uh, and that's essentially what you're going to see across uh, the country is a strategy to create 50 Roe v. Wades. Uh, they did something like this in Iowa in uh, uh, just a few years ago. They've done it elsewhere. Uh, just as Roe v. Wade invented this right to privacy, which confers uh, beneath its emanations and penumbras, uh, it, it uh, invents the right to sexual privacy, which then, uh, as an emanation of that right, protects the right to abortion. You're seeing that same kind of uh, eisegesis of the Constitution uh, in its jurisprudence being read into state constitutions, not just the national constitution. So even if they lose the uh, the battle there, several judicial activists across the country are trying to create a new Roe v. Wade patchwork in uh, states where they control the state Supreme Court. So uh, this once again is going to undermine, it's going to circumvent uh, democracy, it's going to circumvent people's ability to control their own laws and to protect children uh, for reasons uh, of viability or perhaps, depending on how extremist they are, for any case, whatever. Yeah, I think if we could fast forward into a time machine, maybe a year from now or so, I think we're going to see some fairly significant hardening of state divisions, assuming that the Alito uh, ruling is made law and Roe versus Wade is overturned we're in, and it's thrown back to the state level. We're going to see some pretty sig uh, significant division among states, and that's going to be tricky to deal with, too. Ben, we just had a, a listener write in uh, questions about some of the Hillary Clinton case and the prosecution of some of the corruption that was going on and, and the allegations that President Trump in 2016 was working with Russia, and that's proving to be um, a bit of a fraud or, or untrue. Anything you're seeing in that case in the headlines right now? Oh, quite a bit. Uh, one of the, uh, the, the Durham has handed down a number of indictments. One of them was on a uh, gentleman by the name of Igor Danchenko, who uh, provided much of the material that was in the uh, so-called Christopher Steele dossier, the Russian dossier, which had all sorts of lurid material. Uh, Danchenko claimed that he had firsthand knowledge or that he had interviewed people, and uh, he ended up lying to prosecutors about the fact that most of this came from uh, a, a particular source who had very few ties to Russia, and uh, a lot of it was simply him uh, talking with friends and passing along rumors and innuendo. Uh, so he lied to federal prosecutors about the source of that material. Uh, you also have uh, the fact that Michael Sussman, who is a lawyer who uh, worked for a firm that worked for Hillary Clinton for, uh, for president, essentially was the one who leaked this to the FBI, claimed that he was not representing anyone. He was doing this in his own personal capacity because he had this amazing tale that uh, there was a computer that linked the Trump campaign to the Alpha Bank, the largest private bank in Moscow. And as it turned out, what it was was uh, basically a computer that sent spam email messages to people. And, it, and Alpha Bank happened to be one of the clients. Donald Trump happened to be one of the clients. It sent advertisements for one of the Trump organizations to Alpha Bank. So... Uh, they they knew fairly clearly uh, very early in 2017 that this was not a legitimate case, uh, and yet Sussman lied about it. And as it turns out, Hillary Clinton was personally involved and knew uh, about this and authorized the leak of this material to the media in order to steal the, uh, the determination of the FBI to investigate Trump. Uh, as we know from the internal documents now, they didn't need a whole lot of prodding. They already were well aware of it. 
uh, in, uh, in one of the uh, documents that's come out, uh, one of the investigators says the people on the seventh floor, including the director, are very keen about uh, investigating Trump. So uh, evidently this goes all the way to the top of the federal bureaucracy and all the way to the top of, uh, at that time, the titular head of the Democratic Party would have been Hillary Clinton. And it was a fraud. It involves lying. It involves perjury if these allegations are correct. So uh, there, there's a lot of investigation yet to be done. But uh, all of it looks as though for two years at a minimum, all of the bureaucracy, all of the Justice Department and all of the media were heavily involved in proclaiming disinformation. And now they're talking about setting up uh, disinformation boards to regulate uh, shows like this. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, Ben, uh, not a huge shock, I suppose, from the perspective of world history to see that there is corruption in some level of the government. <laughs> and we got to leave it right there. But this is why uh, you and I and our Faith Radio family, Paul Pro, everyone involved, we fix our eyes on Jesus. It's an entirely different government, isn't it? Amen. That's the kingdom that we all owe our allegiance to. Blessed is that king. I love it. Thanks for taking the time again, Ben. We love your wisdom and insights as always. Have a great Memorial Day weekend ahead. And when we come back in just a few minutes, we'll be joined by author and theologian Michael Byrd. We'll continue this vein of the conversation and talk about his book that highlights religious freedom in a secular age. Paul, for this next conversation, we're going to have to put on our thinking caps. A little early in the morning, we're going to be using a very large word called secularization. This is a a big word. I know it's a word you guys use, you and Carmen both, too, and it's a really important word. It is a big word. Do you have any sort of quick 15-second snippet definition that you can give us for secularization? No. (laughs) (laughs) We are going to be talking with uh, author and theologian Michael Bird all the way from Australia here in just a couple of minutes to talk about uh, religious freedom in a secular age. And and he will define secularization for us. It's an important term to understand because it does exert quite a bit of influence on our religious expression. And there really are two different philosophical camps in a tug of war in our country going on. One is this idea of secularization. Again, we'll define that in just a bit, as well as those people who are practicing a faith tradition, and especially for us, of course, following Jesus. There's a big tug of war there, and we'll hear from Michael his thoughts on that, as well as how and what we can learn from the Thessalonian response all the way back in Scripture some 2,000 years ago. Welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. This is Mornings Without Carmen this morning for the 26th of May. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for today and tomorrow as Carmen is away as part of this Memorial Day weekend. And glad to be joined by author and theologian Michael Bird this morning, who has released a new book called Religious Freedom in a Secular Age, calling all the way from Australia. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Peter. Hello to all your listeners, and thank you for having me. And I suppose it's evening for you, right? What is the time difference between the Central Standard Time of the United States and Australia? Are you What time of the day is it for you? I think it's, well, for me, the time is uh, 9.30. Uh, so I think it's like a 16-hour difference. 
Amazing. Yeah, well, thanks for joining us. This book is uh, top of the mind kinds of stuff right now. I, I know that you've done a lot of work uh, just getting into the subject of the day, which are these two competing forces that seem to be happening not just in the United States, but a lot of the Western world, including Australia, I assume. And, and that is this idea of secularization versus religious expression. Why don't you, if you could, define for us what we mean by this term secularization to begin with? Well, secularization is the process by which countries become less religious and more secular. Now, sometimes it can be done as a natural progression through the ebb and flow of the religious beliefs or lack thereof of your population and your demographic areas. But other times it can be something that is deliberately manufactured, whereby governments and bureaucracy somewhat discourages or attempts to reduce the public expression of religion. Uh, That's secularization, uh, which I would say is different from secularism, which I think is actually a good thing. I think secularization can be something that's a little bit more uh, militant and hostile as a process, whereas secularism is simply the way uh, states and religious bodies come to a settlement about how to live together. What is the domain and limits of religious expression and what is the domain and limits of the state and how it might uh, impinge on religious communities? Michael, let's use an example here to maybe better understand some of the terminology that we're diving into, and that would be in the subject of marriage, for example. Um, How would secularization approach the idea of marriage and maybe compare and contrast that with how marriage is understood through the Christian worldview? Well, in the Christian worldview, uh, marriage is understood as a union between a man and a woman to the exclusion of all other relationships. Now, various jurisdictions around the world, including America and Australia, have decided to redefine marriage so it can be um, uh, two people largely of, uh, of the same sex if need be. Now, that does create something of a conflict um, because religious communities generally do not affirm same-sex marriage and not willing to solemnize it or to consecrate it uh, in terms of a wedding. So that can be something of uh, a problem or of a conflict. And then, you know, what happens if you're a teacher at a Catholic school and it turns out one of your teachers um, is a man who's married to another man? So there you've got a, a conflict between the religious beliefs of the school and the state with its own beliefs on what marriage can be, and also, um, you know, anti-discrimination law, since you're not meant to discriminate against people in same-sex relationships, and yet uh, religious communities and institutions and education and the charity sector uh, wants people who reflect their own values in the mission they're carrying out. So that's the nature of the conflict that we're seeing in various places around the world in Europe, Asia, Australia, and America. It may be another good example because that was an excellent uh, example you gave in terms of contrasting the two views. When we think about where authority comes from in these different uh, philosophies or ideas or ways of doing life together, we see that authority in the Christian faith for sure comes from Scripture as the inspired word. We also lean into trusted theologians who've written over the generations and time. We, we lean into a number of things um, sort of as categories B, C, and D underneath Scripture to understand our faith. How does secularization understand its authority? What, what is driving it? What is the authority or, or structure within that worldview? Well, you have to first thing you have to remember is secularism is not one thing. It's about 20 different things. 
the secularism of France is different to the United Kingdom. I mean, the United Kingdom has an official state church. You know, the Church of Anglican Anglicanism is the official religion of England. The head of state is also the head of the Church of England. Now, that's very different to what you have in America with a, a fairly sharp um, contrast between church and state. But even that gets expressed differently depending whether you're in Massachusetts or you're in Texas. So the first thing to remember, there's different types of secularism. But secularism, um, is, I would say, is a Christian invention. It's a way of trying to figure out how we can have religious diversity, peace, and harmony. So I would say secularism is actually a good thing. Um, because if you don't, you say, well, we want to be a Christian country, well, fine. Which Christian? Um, do Baptists want the um, Anglicans forcing them to baptize their babies? Do they want to, uh, the imposition of bishops over their congregations being forced to use the Book of Common Prayer? Um, so secularism basically means you're going to be free in your religion and also we're not going to be a theocracy. So the, the, so secularism, had diversely done, doesn't have a source of authority. It's a kind of a settlement that says how do we live with religious differences. The problem is when secularism becomes an agenda to try to liquidate or to try remove a faith and religion from the public square, that's when it really becomes a problem. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk about in just a moment. One more example of, I think, what you're describing right now is that tension that allows for the freedom of religious expression and diversity within a common union. That That's going to play itself out in conversations like vaccination, for example. Can you have an exemption from a state-mandated vaccine requirement mm. for religious purposes, or we just having spent the last couple of weeks in Scotland, we met with a family uh, where she had grown up in France, and they're homeschooling their children in Scotland right now, but they couldn't homeschool their children in, in France. Uh, they were doing it for religious reasons, but France would disallow that. So these are some of the examples of that tension between the freedom of religious diversity and what the state is requiring. Yeah, and that's exactly, that is the nature of the tension as we have it. Um, like, I mean, there, there are some issues with vaccine mandates. So, um, you know, the government can, uh, according to international law, um, can restrict religious freedom for public safety, but that's got to be measured against a, a degree of detriment. And I, I found it a little bit hip, hypocritical in certain places around the world that governments were stopping houses of worship from operating but they were allowing uh, casinos and brothels mm. to continue um, to be legally operated, uh, which would suggest that the degree of detriment was not being evenly distributed throughout the society. So, I mean, that's, that's, so that's one good example about the sort of the conflict you have between state, law, and religion. I um, mean, the, the other one, the big one, obviously, uh, are things connected to LGBT rights. So how does that conflict with religious freedom and how do you reach a settlement? Uh, and, and in most jurisdictions, you have a non-discrimination principle that discriminating people is bad. But, you know, it's it's going to be very difficult to force, say, a Muslim school to hire, you know, hypothetically, a gay atheist to be the, the principal or president of a Muslim school. I mean, I don't think that's going to work in practice. 
And there is the danger that a type of progressive orthodoxy can be imposed on religious institutions. And that is the debate we're having in many places around the world. Yeah, that really is the danger. We're talking with Michael Bird, who is the author of Religious Freedom in a Secular Age. Highly recommend picking up this book for those of you that really are are into the tension between what's going on at the state level and what's happening with our faith, because Michael is arguing for how we can create uh, spaces of freedom for religious expression while still honoring the way the government is meant to operate. But Michael, what you've touched on a couple of times now is that when the government begins to exert its influence, uh, attempting to drive out religious expression, now we're talking about something different here. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in my own state of Victoria, um, which is, uh, how can I put it? It, it is so progressive, it makes California look like Alabama in comparison. <laughs> uh, that's how bad it is. And the, the government's at the point where they want to start telling communities of faith how they can talk about family, marriage, and sexuality. And they have passed a law banning um, gay conversion therapy, which was accepted by all the major religious bodies. You know, Anglican, Catholic, Muslim, Jewish rejected these very, um, I think, cruel and often demeaning conversion practices. But they passed incredible legislation where, you know, certain types of prayers are legally prohibited. And... um, and that's really, I mean, it's the only jurisdiction in the world, the only law in the world I know that bans certain types of prayer. And it, you know, it depends on the prayer. Like, you know, I mean, something like praying the gay away or something is, uh, I think, absurd as that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could argue that is uh, harmful or at least not helpful. But, you know, if I pray that my um, same sex attracted Christian friend would learn to walk in holiness as he discerns his own calling as as a, as a person of faith, uh, if that call, that prayer for holiness, somehow restricts his sexual expression, you know, it could fall foul of the law depending on how narrow or how broadly they want to interpret the meaning of suppression. And that's that's a real concerning thing that uh, I am about my own local situation in Australia. And it's because of reasons like that, incidences like that, why I wrote this book in the first place. Yeah, that specific conversation that you just referenced, Michael, about LGBTQ, it's it's one of those places in which, as I teach sexuality at our local university here and have for the better part of seven or eight years now, um, the church has an opportunity for a much more nuanced engagement than social policy tends to have related to it. And this is where I think the church, uh, again, can be a leading and, and prophetic voice of truth related to to this tension of grace and truth for people where we recognize things are going on in terms of sexual desire and sexual attraction, but but the answer to it or the remedy to it in terms of how to live what you've described, a life of faithfulness and holiness and, and um, walking in that in your sexuality is different than what usually social policy or government is going to offer. And so the church really needs to engage with this. Yeah, it is. And the, the problem is that the church's view of what counts as holiness could be considered a form of either suppression or discrimination. And it becomes dangerous then if the uh, state, in whatever jurisdiction, takes upon itself the prerogatives to try to get people to either change their religion or to kind of interdict the context in where that religious content uh, is allowed to be expressed. And I think that's that's the problem. I think we would all say that anything harmful or punitive against LGBT people 
is bad, but the fact of the matter is in a multicultural country like America or Australia, you're going to have different views of family, marriage and sexuality. And if you start kind of criminalizing others or, or trying to be coercive towards certain views, it's not going to be conducive to a more inclusive and tolerant society. You're going to simply replace one set of um, uh, orthodoxies, one sense of authoritarian views with simply with another. And I think that's the, that's the danger we've got to wrestle with in the current moment. Yeah, we're talking with Michael Bird about his book, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age. If you have a question for Michael or for me as we're in, uh, just going back and forth in dialogue on this, you can text it in at 877-933-2484. We'd love to hear what insights and questions you have. And Michael, when we come back after stepping away for a couple of minutes, we'll talk a little bit about how the church can learn from previous church expressions, including the Church of Thessalonica, in terms of how to be that witness in, in a time of hostility and in a time in which maybe some of the social policy is arrayed against us. So stay with us. More to come with Michael Bird in just a moment. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Just about 11 minutes before the top of the hour here on the 26th of May. I'm Peter Kapsner filling in for Carmen LeBurge, and we are talking with author, theologian Michael Bird in his book, Religious Freedom in a Secular Age. And Michael, one of the things that I love about these breaks is that the conversation just kind of continues off the air that we've been doing on the air. And just as we are heading into coming back live, you referenced uh, some things around young people. We've been talking about LGBTQ, and we've been talking about the confusion that exists among young people, too. Uh, It sounds like you know somebody who's written a book uh, that might give us a little bit of insight into what's happening here. And maybe the answers to this isn't trying to discover things about ourselves. Why don't you tell us more about that? Yeah, I mean, the book is by my colleague, uh, Brian Rosner. I mean, he did one book called Known by God, which is a, um, uh, a biblical theology of personal identity. Um, uh, but he's, he's also got a new one that's come out. I'm just thinking, um, uh, just thinking, uh, what, what's, what's it called? Um, or how to find yourself. Why looking inward is not the answer. I mean, you know, because our culture is filled with these really weird sort of um, one lines, like, you know, be true to yourself, mm-hmm. um, which, which I think is, you know, absurd. Um, I mean, Harvey Weinstein doesn't need to be true to himself. Right. I mean, he needs to be, he needs to be a different person. And that's the idea that, you know, I've already got all the resources I need already within myself. So I just need to click my existential heels together three times <laughs> and say, be all you can be and I'll be fine. And, and I think that denies the fact that, you know, we need a teacher. We need a mentor. Uh, we need something to give us a moral compass, someone to direct us in the path of maturity, someone to make us a better person. Uh, we are not born with all the resources we need. We need uh, a people around us. We need a village of friends, elders, people who hold us accountable and encourage us and to call us out when we're being a douche. So, yeah, I mean, I think, and, and that's, but that's a very big challenge to our culture as it currently stands. It really is. That lack of initiation for young people today, and this is part of, you know, the, the need for being able to express ourselves in, in our faith, especially in our Christian faith, is that young people don't need to be told more to go live their truth or be whatever they want to be. They, they want to be swept up in some kind of story, a larger narrative in which then they find their place in relationships and community. And, and I would suggest that this hyper-individualism that you're describing, which is basically, you go do your own truth, that that's actually feeding into the mental health crisis of the day. 
Oh, it is. It is. And uh, I would say similarly, all the talk of identity uh, is, is also very similar. I mean, when you, when you ask people what they mean by identity, uh, I, I think it's become like a secular version of the soul. It's kind of like a true inner self, um, somewhere between an, an executive self and something as to the story that I'm a part of. You know, whether that's in, you know, an LGBT struggle or whether it's a political struggle, um, the history of particular people. I mean, like when people ask me what my identity is, I say, well, I'm baptized. And they say, no, I, I didn't want to know your religion. I want to know your identity. And I said, well, that is my identity. Baptized into Christ is my identity. Uh, that's more important than my gender. That's more important than my vocation. That's more important than my relationships. That's more that's more important than even my sexual desire. Mm. And uh, people get confused from that. Like, I mean, I thought your sexual desire is who you are. And I say, well, no, it's a very small part of who I am. There's so much more to me. I'm not going to be defined purely by, you know, my, my, my sexuality. I, my, my identity and who I am is so much more than that. But that's, that's, a, that's a big challenge today where sexual identity has become the be-all and end-all of our identity. Mm. Well, in, in your book and in, in some of the description of your book, it talks about uh, standing up in a post-Christian world uh, in a way that is humble and gentle and yet courageous. I love those phrases again, humble and gentle and yet courageous. And you even tap into a bit of the historic church in Thessalonica and what we can learn from Scripture there. So what are some insights just on kind of a thumbnail basis from your book? Yeah, well, in my book, I argue that um, secularism is not a bad thing. Secularism is about creating space for people of all of all faith and none. We don't want to be a theocracy. We don't want to replace the president with an Ayatollah, a Dalai Lama, or a Pope. Uh, but the other side of secularism is the government doesn't tell you how to do your religion. And if the government starts to telling you how to do your religion then we need to take that courageous stand for our faith. And I like what what it says about Paul and his colleagues when they arrived in Thessalonica. And it said how, you know, these people have been turning the world upside down and now they've come here. And I think if we ever do face a a government of any variety that is punitive and coercive in matters of religion, we've got to turn the world upside down. You know, we've got to stand up for the freedom of religion for all people, not just for the Christian tribes, but for, you know, Muslims, Baha'is, Jews, Sikhs, whatever. We've got to be willing to build um, partnerships across Christian groups, across other religious groups. We've got to demonstrate how religion is generally good for the world and contributes to human flourishing. And we've got to have the courage of our convictions not to retreat, but to stand in the marketplace, the public square, on radio, as you good people are doing, to stand up for the truth and the fact that uh, certain rights are God-given and intrinsic and no one has the authority to take them away. Yeah, Michael, we just have about a minute left or so. And what you just said in terms of maintaining religious expression, that if we're going to be a country of religious freedom, then that does require that there's freedom for other religions outside of Christianity. And the opportunity that we have then is in the public square of ideas and, and more importantly, the lived way of life we manifest. We can demonstrate that that following Jesus and the fact that the power of sin has been broken, that tomb is empty, really does transcend any other religious expression. 
Yep, that's exactly, that's what it's all about. And if we have a healthy view of secularism, a healthy view of religious freedom, and if we build the laws and the institutional apparatuses that will enable us to do that, I think we'll have a far more inclusive and tolerant society in the long term. Oh, I love it. Well, thanks for calling in from Australia uh, late at night. I assume, Michael, when you look at your window right now, you're just seeing nothing but kangaroos. I mean, my perceptions of Australia is that they're everywhere, but that can't be true. Uh, well, I mean, to, to be perfectly honest, I just think kangaroos are gigantic rats with big with good PR, um, if, if you ask me. But I'll be honest with you, life in Australia is good. Um, the Vegemite is fresh and the kangaroos roam free. And uh, yeah, life life is pretty life is pretty good down here. I love it. Thanks again for taking the time to join us once again. The book is Religious Freedom in a Secular Age. All of the usual channels, including Amazon, you can have it by tomorrow if you just want to search for it there and get it delivered. We'll come back and wrap up the first hour of Mornings Without Carmen and preview hour two up next. Paul, we have some listeners writing in asking how to spell his name or what was his last name. It's Michael Bird. B, just like it sounds, right? Yeah, B- it's a bird. I, yeah, B-I-R-D. Bird, bird, bird. bird. Bird's yeah. the word. Great stuff. Funny, accessible, uh, and he really does have some important insights. And and one thing that I very much appreciate are people when they live outside of a given context, and in this case, he lives outside the United States of America, yet he's familiar with it. So he can point out some important things. And I love that idea of creating and advocating for religious expression, even while then not having the government maybe try try to promote it themselves. We just need to live in that way. Yeah. And that's why I asked the question earlier about because you were in Scotland and hearing what brothers and sisters over there were saying how they're perceiving us or how they're perceiving all the stuff we're following like the Ukrainian war because oftentimes we get a little insular and we don't get a more fuller perspective from other faithful followers of Christ. Yeah, it's so true. I remember the first time I turned on the news when we moved overseas and I thought, oh, they didn't actually even talk about the United States of America in these last 30 seconds. <laughs> and, Paul, I kid you not, I even discovered that France is just south of England. I didn't even know across the channel where it was. My my lack of geography oh when we first I know, I know. I lost all credibility. Back to seventh with, grade uh, geography class for you, bud. Well, we love first hour with uh, Ben Johnson and Michael Bird coming up at the top of hour two. We'll talk a little bit about the troubling shootings and the response of an NBA coach, Steve Kerr. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.